Welcome to the Brain Health and Beyond podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. We're so excited to have an amazing guest today, a friend and someone we admire for his work as a great surgeon, a clinician, a scientist, and a fierce warrior for the truth, Dr. Garth Davis. He's the author of Proteinaholic, a brilliant, fascinating, and paradigm-shifting book that explores our false notions about diet, and best of all, presents decades worth of research showing the evidence and broad consensus on nutrition and health. Please join us as we discuss nutrition, public health, the prevailing myths, and the importance of scientific thinking. This is one conversation you don't want to miss. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as we did. Welcome, Garth. Thank you so much for your time and for being here with us. Well, thank you so much. That's awesome. We're big fans of your work, and the mere fact that you exist in the world of science and evidence-based medicine gives us a lot of hope and energy to move forward. <laughs> well, that's too sweet. And it's one of the things we wanted to discuss with you today, uh, share some experiences on how it feels to be a physician and a healthcare provider, uh, taking care of patients on a daily basis, and uh, staying on track with what science has laid out, and also fighting against pseudoscience yeah. when the time comes. Your fabulous book is called Proteinaholic, which we highly recommend for people to read, whether they're healthy or uh, whether they're on their journey towards health, to get a better understanding of the nuances of nutritional science and the biases that uh, can cause confusion and what we need to do to stay healthy as a society. We're also excited to learn more about your field. You know, as a surgeon, I mean, no disregard, no disrespect to any surgeons, when you go to all these conferences about surgeries, it's all about technique and method. And rarely do you hear anyone talking about nutrition. It's like that even in neurology as well. You know, the nutrition <clears throat> sessions in any conference are way outside of the main conference hall where you have to walk and there are about two or three people not really interested in the science. So how did you get into nutrition as a bariatric surgeon? Yeah, look, it's interesting. I hate to even criticize doctors or medicine right now because we're in such a time where, yeah, I don't know, people have such distrust of doctors now. So much so that they think we're like paid by pharma to give vaccines to kill people. It's just like the, the stuff I hear online, I'm like, what do people think about doctors nowadays? It's just unreal. Whereas I'm sure you would agree with me, the fat, look, there's a bad apple in every bunch, but the vast majority of doctors I know are such fantastic, intelligent human beings that care about their patients. But look, nothing about Anything is perfect, and Western medicine certainly has its problems. Western medicine is definitely sick care. It is not health care, per se. Uh, even when you look at something as simple as preventative medicine, in preventative medicine, they're teaching, you know, get your colonoscopy to catch the cancer early or mammograms. Uh, that's not preventative, really. That's early diagnosis. Um, so I started off, you know, I did surgery, residency, came out into practice, and at that time, bariatric surgery was kind of taking off because it had been a field that had been around for a while, but it was such a large surgery with big incisions and people were getting really sick from it. But it was just starting to be done laparoscopically. And that was really my specialty was to be able to do surgeries through small incisions. And so I came at it more from a technical standpoint than from a particular interest in, in obesity. I realized that there was a need for it. The data was very clear that it was beneficial if it was done correctly. So my plan was to do it correctly. And it was interesting. I tell you guys, like the, the first few 
I, I guess it kind of dawned on me a bit, but the first few big national meetings I went to, I mean, can you imagine going to a meeting to discuss obesity and you're sitting there for a week in lectures all day long and no one's talking about food, yeah. you know? Yeah. And it's crazy, right? We're, we're talking about obesity and no one is talking about food. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You know, I start, you start seeing these patients and like they all have the same kind of diseases, right? It's a hypertension. It's high cholesterol. Everybody's got sleep apnea. I see the same diseases over and over again. Yeah. Looking at what everybody's eating. Everybody's eating the same thing. They're having bacons and eggs uh, and they're having sandwich for lunch and steak yeah. for dinner. I was having the same thing. You know, I was yeah. the same thing my, par- my patients were. And then, you know... I, I, I start getting overweight and sick and uh, go to get a life insurance policy and my cholesterol is sky high and I'm hypertensive and I'm getting overweight and uh, go get my eyes examined. And, like I've got cholesterol deposits in my retina and I'm mm. like, oh my God, this is, this is, I'm getting the same thing. I know where this is heading, right? I know yeah. what I'm going to be if I keep doing this. I'm going to be one of my patients. And so I started thinking is this what we're born? Is that, are our genetics such that this is what we're born for? Or are there parts of the world where this is differently? And that kind of started me on a, it was almost like a quest to find the answer. And, and uh, I found it in diet. And now it's like, you know, if I go to a weight loss surgery conference and they're like, look, they're starting to talk about food a little bit, although I would say the wrong terms, but they're mm-hmm. still talking about food. But now, you know, we talk about someone failing weight loss surgery and the answer isn't, well, we got to get them to eat differently. It's like, let's do another weight loss surgery. Let's yeah. put yeah. a band around that weight loss surgery. And and now that doesn't, you know, that just doesn't work for me. I, I'm much more interested in how can I help someone change their lifestyle? No, no question the surgery works. In fact, the surgery might work too well because it works so well that people have come to give it like, we're just going to do the surgery and that's it. You'll do fine. You know, um, I don't really need to tell you much because the surgery is going to work. And that'll be it. And, you know, quite honestly, if you go from a double cheeseburger to a single cheeseburger, you're a little bit healthier. And so we say, hey, look, it's better than a diet. It works. And so that's it. What I want is a complete change in my patients. I want them to like and I really want them to focus on the fact that it's not about the surgery. It's about the lifestyle change. The surgery is a tool to help you make that lifestyle change and sustain it. We do have we could get into the pathogenesis and pathophysiology of obesity. There are genetic factors and things like that. The surgery helps, you know, address those factors so that the patient can then make, you know, easier, healthier lifestyle changes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We have seen this in our population. I mean, the, the funny thing is the patients that get the surgery, they, they do very well, but a lot of times their behavior doesn't change. And that's never addressed. Even where we are in Loma Linda, that's a rarity where they, anybody addresses the behavioral aspect of it. And the behavioral aspect where we are, where in Loma Linda proper, you see a fairly large proportion of healthy people, but five miles away across from the highway is San Bernardino, where it is absolutely the opposite. Oh, it's horrible. The unhealthiest place in, in America, pretty much. Yeah. And it has nothing to do with the, you know, the socioeconomic race or anything of that nature, although those are variables. You know, we believe in complexity of data, not just simple linear data. Exactly. Uh, so you have to take. Complexity is important. We always talk about the fact that one of the problems with, uh, uh, not to get too cynical, but human nature is that we are not designed to think multi-dimensionally, and that might become a problem later on because people can fool you and confound you and throw enough data to to take you out of that complexity into some some chaos. But you're absolutely right. I mean, that lifestyle component must be addressed, must be central. And you've done it so well in the book. Uh, you've elucidated that. And every time we hear you talk, 
you focus on the central aspect of it, which, uh, you know, I've like maybe 18 family members who are surgeons, never heard about diet from any of them. Yeah. So that's uh, really a remarkable thing to see. And uh, and 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 that. So in your perspective, it's a more of a whole food plant based. That's where you come from. That's where we are coming from as well. And why do you think that that diet in particular is better than any other diet? Yeah. And so you know, with my patients, I I got to meet them somewhat where they are. You know, I can't come in and say you got to be vegan. And so really, I'm trying to turn the plate around a bit. Again, if you start looking at the blue zones and you guys live in one uh, or work in one. And and you, you drew very good attention to the fact that you got Loma Linda, California, and you go, you know, just a mile over, same environment and everything, and you've got a totally different lifestyle. And so lifestyle really does matter. And so what I try to teach the patients is what are these blue zones doing? I mean, what makes a Loma Linda person healthier than a San Bernardino person? And it's a very shocking to some of the patients because they don't realize some of this stuff. They're still very wedded into the idea that they've got to eat a lot of protein. Like I could tell a patient, I want you to eat. I, you know, I had this one patient, I talk about her in the book, where, I mean, she's this is a, a NASA rocket scientist. And she comes to see me overweight. And, you know, she's from Ghana, but she's been living in America and she's overweight. And I'm like looking at her food log. And it's eggs for breakfast, it's mm -hmm. chicken for lunch, and chicken for dinner. And I was like, why do you think you're overweight? She says, well, it's because of the carbs. And I'm like, but there's no carbs on your diet list. And she's like, well, you know, once in a while I get together with my friends from Ghana. We have a typical meal from Ghana, and it's got a lot of carbs in it. So I'm like, so you're telling me you're overweight because of the Ghana meal. <laughs> and I'm like, have you ever been to Ghana? And she's like, well, yes. Now, I knew a, th a thing or two about Ghana because I've been you know, researching for the book, and they have one of the lowest rates of obesity in the entire world. Yeah. And I was like, well, in Ghana, I mean, were, were people obese? She's like, oh, no, everybody was skinny. I was an anomaly. Yeah. And she's like, you know what? I was there for two months. I actually lost weight. I'm like, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> this is it. But I mean, people are so wedded to this protein idea that they just continuously eat the same foods, driving towards trying to get enough protein. Meanwhile, they're getting two times the amount of protein they need. And at the same time, they're getting a whole bunch of fat with it. And they're not eating enough fiber, so they've got a very low fiber diet. Yeah. And this creates a bit of a problem. Of course, they're also eating ultra-processed food, so it's not just the protein, but also the ultra-processed food. And in the end, they have a standard American diet, which is an extraordinarily unhealthy diet. Almost any diet is better than a standard American yeah. diet. So what I want is higher fiber in their diet, less dependence on animal protein. That's not to say that they can't have any animal protein, but less dependence on it. There, there's been a lot of studies, you know, with surgery. Part of the reason surgery works is it works on some of the hunger hormones. So, you know, the simple idea, you've got a nice picture in the background of the brain, and you could attest to the fact that hunger is not coming from the cerebrum. It's not really a thought process. Like, it's not a, a, a you know, people think about willpower. Like, mm -hmm. this. I, I have a thought, and it's this control thought. No, hunger is contra uh, controlled in a very primitive parts of the brain. That's and right. the, feed, the feedback into that parts, of, into those parts of the brain come from many different sources. There's vagal nerve input. There's ghrelin coming from the stomach, PPY. And there are all these different hormones drive people to eat. So the simple act of, of being hungry, people think of that as something that they can control and they really can't. And that's what makes one person more overweight than another. And, uh, and you know, we've taken, there, there's been all these experiences where you take an obese person, you put them in a functional MRI machine and you show them a hamburger, their brain's going to act in a very different manner than someone who's normal weight. They've got mm -hmm. a, a different response to these foods. 
the, the thing about a plant-based diet, there's a couple things that work very well with it. Number one, one of the factors in a gastric bypass that works very well is it increases a hormone called GLP-1. It, it turns out that plant-based diets do the exact same thing. They increase GLP-1. Number two, it is very hard if someone needs that actual act of mastication. And we know the actual act of chewing does stimulate some of the vagal fibers into the brain with yes. the uh, feelings of satiety. So that act of chewing, the act of being able to eat actually does satiate. So I never say you can't eat. If you, it just doesn't work. You cannot tell an overweight person, don't eat. It doesn't happen. But if I tell them they can eat, I don't care how many apples you eat, yeah. as many as you want. I don't care how many how much salad you eat. I don't care how much potatoes. These kind of foods have low calorie density. So they're eating a high volume of food. It's going to get into the stomach and stretch the stomach, thereby stimulating vagal receptors. It is going to stimulate GLP-1. It is going to satisfy ghrelin and cause ghrelin to drop. And yet it's not a lot of calories in it. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, you know, and, and that tends to work extremely well. I have tried everything with patients. I've tried back when I was meat eating. I've tried Atkins with patients. I've tried, I used to have metabolic machines where I'd measure their metabolism and we would do calorie restriction. And uh, I would tell them exactly how I want you to eat 1,432 calories and I want you to mark it and I'm going to check you every week. That never worked. Uh, this has been the only thing that has really, really worked and it's worked tremendously successfully. There's no counting. There's no measuring. Um, you know, eat as much as you want provided it's whole foods. Absolutely. I, I love the concept. The, 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 one of my least favorite words in English language is motivation. Yeah. It, it has no meaning. There's no, no denominator. No. There's no, yeah. so or what are you doing? It's a, it's a judgment. It's a word pregnant with judgment and with history. Right. Um, we are mechanical. I mean, this is going to be very unpopular. I don't even believe in free will, but that's a, the whole other talk with uh, fMRIs and all of that. But oh, that's cool. But yeah, but it's mechanical. And the reason we are in a certain place is because genetics and environment, what's the third element? And, and if it's genetic and environment, then the genes, you can't do too much. Well, not in short term, maybe over time. Even that can be adapted through epigenetics. We epigenetics have to, for sure. Yeah, so. exactly. Especially in obesity, there's an epigenetic component. Absolutely. And then the other one is behavior. And behavior is programmed, repetitive, almost like what in computer science they call it macro programs. Mm -hmm. These macro programs have been put in place when you're a teenager, right? When we give a talk, we say, really, you want to stick to your teenage habits? So, but to reprogram that, it cannot be judgmental, all plant or the... You have to meet, I loved what, the way you approach this. You have to meet them where they are, find the successes where that can be repeated, and then that becomes the nidus for habit, personality, all of that. So sure. you've done that for you know more than a decade or more. I'm, 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 that was a compliment to you. I love uh, the fact I, that you... I love the fact that you've, um, you've also addressed the importance of cognitive behavioral therapy and that aspect of habit uh, when it comes to changing in nutrition. Because like you say in your book, it's probably one of the hardest things for people to do. And just the discussion of changing their diets or their nutrition is hard. You said in your book that it's sometimes easier to talk about religion than food yes. because yeah, it's such a so personal yeah. it's yeah. a right. personal topic it's not just right. the food it's it's your memories it's your experiences in life and what has worked with you what is the first step that you take to change somebody's diet 
Yeah, so um, quite a few things. We do use a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy. I'm a huge fan of a book called Beck's Diet Solutions. So Judith Beck was one of the founders. Her dad, Aaron Beck, was the founder of cognitive behavioral therapy. Her books are excellent. They've got some very great methods to help people make changes. And so her book, Beck's Diet Solution, doesn't talk about diet at all. There's no diet in there at all. It talks about steps you can make to change habits. The first thing I try to work with is a very set eating pattern that obeys circadian rhythm. I think circadian rhythm is extremely important. Uh, We're finding in in this kind of concept called time-restricted eating, not quite intermittent fasting, but time-restricted eating. So I try to have my patients eat at the exact same time every day. I also want them not to eat too frequently, so they got to get to what they're comfortable, maybe three meals and a snack, and eat over a 10-hour window. So there's certain times they eat. I try to get them to get a little bit comfortable with the idea that if you're hungry, you're not going to die. In other words, it's one o'clock, your snack's at two o'clock or three o'clock, you're not going to die. You can make it there. And you just got to tell yourself that eventually your body gets very used to that. That way we stop the grazing. A lot of people eat very subconsciously. Like uh, we have found that when people do, when you try to do calorie count measurements, people forget the handful of M&Ms they pulled off of someone's table at, you know, one thirty when they were mindlessly eating. They do a lot of things very mindlessly. Food's there, they're going to eat it. And so we have found that it's been very successful for them to have a very strict eating time um, so that their brain starts to say, this is when I eat and this is when I'm going to consume my food, not at another time. The other thing that's helped a lot is journaling. You know, again, we're trying to get people very cognitive about their eating habits, the people tend to be very absent-minded about what they eat, and we want them to be mindful. And so mindfulness meditation works very yeah. well, uh, a mindfulness practice about what you're doing when you're eating to be very mindful about every bite you take, how to eat slowly with that food. We've done like trying to be mindful about what trips you up. What are the what are the stressors that get you to eat or to break the program and write down on cards and if then kind of process, this is a Judith Beck concept that if I tend to eat badly when I'm upset with my kids, then instead I will go for a walk or something like that. And if then process, so you have an automatic reaction instead of the automatic trained reaction you already have to just go and grab the food. We find that that's a real powerful factor. Um, I've done some things with, with patients such as doing collages where they take a picture of themselves that they don't like and surround it with pictures that they typically eat. You're, you're so inundated with commercials and advertising. Look at this beautiful cheeseburger. But I want them to associate that cheeseburger with how badly they feel. The cheeseburger is making them feel bad. Instead of that programming for McDonald's that says, oh, you know, what a great choice. Instead, this picture of themselves that they look at with this collage of these foods they typically eat that elicits this where they associate the cheeseburger with not feeling well. And then I also want them to make a collage of what their goal is, a picture of someone, you know, running, looking happy and healthy and surrounding that with the beautiful fruits and vegetables and colorful dishes that I want them to eat so that they start associating that food. Because, and you guys probably feel the same. People say to me, don't you miss eating a cheeseburger? And the answer is no, the, the look of it disgusts me. And I used to love cheeseburgers, but it's, yeah. it's revolting to me. It's not that, yeah. it's not, there's no problem for me to pass up a cheeseburger because I simply don't want it. I want the Buddha bowl, right? Yes. Yeah. That's yeah. What, I want those colors. That's what I want. It's not, it's not like I'm forcing myself to do it because like we talked about before, willpower doesn't work very well. It is now habit. 
It is now conscious that my body recognizes that it makes me feel well, and so therefore I crave it. Mm. So you're basically a neuropsychologist as well. <laughs> a surgeon and a neuropsychologist. I, I try. You to do this field, you got to be a bit of a neuropsychologist. Oh, absolutely. I think absolutely. I think in every field where you're helping them change their habits and relearn yeah. or rewire their brain again towards a better one, it requires that work. The joke yeah. is, you know, you said cheeseburger. Dean used to drive to Philly. For yeah. the Philly cheese, steak cheese, sandwiches. I lived in Pittsburgh, and and I used to drive there like every other weekend. Just I mean, and I thought that was with the cousins, and then all of a sudden, about sixteen years ago, yeah, when we first met, we decided to go plant based, initially vegetarian, I, the, the same way that you said initially, yeah, yeah. actually initially pescatarian. Yeah, <clears throat> I did the same. I did pescatarian first. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. and then uh, vegetarian, and then yeah. uh, uh, whole food, plant based, vegan, but healthy. And the tr now, if I think about those burgers, I, I tell you, I hate anecdotes, whether it's on the plant-based side or other side. I, I know that it's it's always great to hear anecdotes on your side because I have no side of science, <laughs> right. but anecdotes mean nothing. But my own personal situation, I had migraines every single week. Now for the last 14 years, I've not experienced a single migraine. And yeah. we know the triggers for things like migraine. We know the mm. triggers for all of these problems. So one of the things that uh, we like about this approach that you take, and I think we we do as well in our study, we do this, uh, is this multiple tools where people find themselves. They one of them is going to stick. You know, if this collage, if it's the story, if it's the the time restricted, all of these things have to be put in place. And then people, after all, and then the other one is taste. You know, I just can't get used to taste of plants. Well, guess what? It tastes as a habit. Taste is not a thing in itself. It is. It really yeah. is. Tastes change. They really do. They do. Now, yeah. having said that, the challenge that you and us and many of other people who are in this field of lifestyle is noise. Noise in the machine. There's and a lot of noise. There's, yeah, there's a lot of noise. And given that most of us Majority of the time, we're just reflex thinkers. I, I even tell people, even your political views are habits, so don't get too tied to them. <laughs> you know, how do you get people to go away from their comfort zones? You know that, uh, you know the burger, fries, cheese, you know a steak and cheese, to somewhere that's not familiar to them. That non-familiarity is a big detriment. And on top of that, now let's add the noise of all this false or poor or badly cited or or intentionally false science out there how do yeah. you think we can we can face this world well I, you look there's a difference of course of what i'm doing in social media and things like that and what i'm doing with my patients specifically um, with my patients you know i think i develop a very good patient physician relationship whereby yeah. they trust me and so they will trust when i tell them and, and what I like to do is paint them a story. And the story that fits very well is just discussing, look, America, we are the most overweight country in the world. We have the shortest life expectancy of the top 50 civilized countries. So whatever we think we should eat obviously can't be working for us. And then I kind of talk with them. I'm like, well, you know, they did a study in Europe because Europe's catching up with us and they followed 500,000 people for 12 years. You know what one of the number one foods causing weight gain is? And they're like, what, potatoes? And I'm like, no, potatoes were associated with weight loss. It was actually chicken. Now, chicken is what the one thing that they think is like, oh my God, chicken is the health food. Yeah, the health white food, meat. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It, and then they get the shock of their mind. 
you got to be kidding me. I'm like, no, but like, let's take it another way. If we are the most overweight, let's look at the countries or the societies that have the least weight problems and live the longest lives. And we start going into the different blue zones. And are they eating a bunch of chicken? Are they eating a bunch of protein? No. And so I kind of create a story for them that they could understand and that they could relate to. And then, you know, we have a lot of, you know, classes our dietitians teach and uh, the psychological stuff. But I think getting that story in their mind where they could understand that, you know what, you know, when I tell them it's chicken, they're like, oh my God, I eat chicken every day. I've always been told chicken <laughs> is the best. I'm like, okay, and how's it working for you? Yeah. And they're like, well, I'm sitting here in a weight loss doctor's office, so yeah, I guess it's not working for me. And so when I can help them make those kind of uh, associations, it does tend to make them question uh, the intelligence of the of the stories they've been told before. Yeah, uh, absolutely. You have to connect to the patients. I tell them, you know, I don't have patients. I have family. And that's yeah. bad news for you because I get to be annoying. I get to tell you the things you don't want to hear. And yeah. it gets a little chuckle or laughter, but, but it actually breaks through. No, the patients, you're right. There's nothing else except that connection. You have to make yeah. that connection. It's outside of that realm of patient care where you're a national thought leader. You've been on all these shows and, um, um, and, and, and then you have a social media following that's pretty active. Um, and we hope that people like you can get broader presence because this conversation has to get out there. This has consequences. I mean, we're talking about stroke. Aisha is a stroke specialist, 700,000 deaths. Number one cause of mortality, heart disease. All of them have the same thing in common. First and foremost, diet. Right. All of them. And and we are not get, uh, I'm, we're not making breakthroughs the way I, I had hoped uh, 15 years ago. Right. So in the general public, there's a lot of noise. We're going to get into a lot of other fields as well, but especially in the nutrition component where you have, you know, a Walter Willett that we know and, and others from Harvard, from uh, Hopkins, from Columbia, you and others keep saying the same thing. But one person says one little anecdote and the whole population is pulled that way. And, and so we I know that we are in contact. We're talking about this. How do you see this conversation going forward? Are you hopeful about about this making a breakthrough to the general population? I actually am. I mean, I, I am hopeful. Look, things have changed a lot since which I started doing this. 2007, you know, I'm like, you know, and I start researching and I'm a big steak and meat eater. I'm like researching the data. If you really research, I mean, if you are really legitimately researching, there's no question about the right diet. There just isn't. But I mean, you know, I'm always looking at the other side and, and trying to make sure that I'm checking myself and I'm not biased. Uh, but I really don't, I don't know how you could read the literature. And it doesn't necessarily have to be vegan, but there's definitely plants are a big part of a right. uh, healthy diet. Um, and so, you know, it's, I, I'm, uh, there, there's a few things that are driving it forward, and I don't think it's necessarily the health stuff. I don't think it's the heart disease and the stroke. I think it may be more the environmental uh, aspect. I think uh, people are starting to pay attention to it because of the viral and pandemic type situation. But I even think on the health aspect, people are, uh, look, I mean, look at things that are happening like Beyond Meat, you know, mm -hmm. that company's yeah. going through the roof and um, the companies are trying to compete with them and the dairy industry is going out of business. And, and so, yeah, I think we are starting to see a change in the demand. I, I don't think it's enough of a change uh, for either our health or for the health of the um, of the world, but but it is starting to change, and and hopefully it'll it'll magnify from that. 
Uh, there is so much disinformation and noise out there. And the big problem is there is way too much information and there's not enough knowledge. And, and people have just enough information to think they know what they're talking about. But you talked about it a bit before, Dean, and the, this idea that you can't, science isn't one study. Mm-hmm. You know, science, like when I wrote that book, and I try to make it very clear in the book, to me, in order for me to believe it, there had to be epidemiology because. And epidemiology gets such a bad rap because people don't understand epidemiology. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, real epidemiology is a very advanced, very difficult statistical analysis. And there's been some fantastic epidemiological studies. There's been the Harvard studies, but the Harvard Health Professions and the and, and the Harvard Nurses Study, the NIH AARP studies, uh, the studies over guy, by you guys, the Adventist Health Studies, one and two, and now three coming and epic and so many right right and they they all say the same thing and so the beauty of this is we're never gonna have a randomized controlled trial where i make one person eat vegan i'll make one person eat meat and i follow them for 20 years yeah that's never gonna happen no so we have to depend on epidemiology to see if we could get some pattern now epidemiology is not the answer it is just correlation it's not causation but it's correlation after you controlled for weight and you've controlled for all these other factors so much so that you've actually kind of taken away the power of the plant-based diet because the plant-based diet makes you way less so by controlling for weight and stuff. Uh, But still, it all still comes out that plant-based diet was successful, but that's the epidemiology. Then I need to know a mechanism of action. Why are plants good for hypertension? Why are they good for heart disease? What are they doing specifically to do that? So you need a mechanism of action and then you need to put that mechanism of action to the test to do a randomized control trial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can't just do one randomized control trial. You need to do another one that verifies the one that you did. And so it takes this very huge breadth of knowledge in different kinds of science over different parts of the world to come up with a conclusion that, yes, this is how humans should eat. And you know, the average person doesn't think that way. They go on Google, they Google, they look to find the one study that confirms the, you know, the confirmation bias. And then they throw that up on, on social media. Uh, and they say, look, eating meat is good. And, you know, I see it all the time. I was talking with this, you know, and, and you look, a lot of the companies know this, right? They know that, that people do this. They, I don't know if you saw my post today, but I was talking about the weaponization of the comment section. Not yet, no. Um, yeah, the politicians have been using comment sections. Steve Bannon actually talked about this in detail, about how they weaponized the comment section in order to get Trump elected. Yeah. They, Interesting. And, and this is what you see in our comment section. I've actually stopped the comment sections. No one could comment on any of my posts anymore mm. because I just can't stand the misinformation that I get. <clears throat> see, and I can't police my comment section all the time. No. But that's, that's what true. people do is they find this one study, they put it on there, and they try to convince people their way. Meanwhile, these people that are posting this stuff, they don't know science. No. They haven't even read the study. They've just taken the abstract and put it on there. Absolutely. And like there was, a, they were talking about cholesterol once because the, you know, the egg industry wants to get rid of this idea that eggs increase cholesterol. So they did a study where they had people eat more eggs and they showed that the cholesterol didn't go up. And so someone took that and posted that at one of my things. That guy has never read that study. He doesn't understand that in that study, while they did eat more eggs and more cholesterol, they made sure that the experimental group ate less saturated fat mm-hmm. than the control group. And saturated fat is the strongest factor controlling cholesterol. Exactly. So they rigged the system, and it was sponsored by the egg industry. The guy who put it on my thing, he doesn't know any of this. Yeah. But he just puts it on there like, look, you're wrong. 
And that's the kind of stuff that is really messing with people's brains. It yeah, is. no, it we, we have an example of the <clears throat> Epic Oxford study that showed that, uh, you know, vegans were at an increased risk of hemorrhagic stroke. Hemorrhagic stroke. And, Three cases you know, for basically, 10, more. Yeah, w- w- yeah, when you look into the supplemental section of that paper and you look at, compare the numbers of people who have had ischemic versus hemorrhagic stroke, you know, we know that about 85% of all strokes are ischemic and the rest, you know, 15 to 20% is hemorrhagic. The percentages were so off that they were 50-50. And there was this huge misclassification bias that nobody would actually spend time to understand what that means. Why is it there? Why didn't they control it for when it? When 25% of the population is misclassified, how can you make anything out of that data? And then your yeah, outcome is three per 10,000 difference? Three per 10,000. Yeah. Plus there was a decrease in ischemic stroke. It, it was 10, yeah. uh, 10, yeah. 10 per 10,000. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this wall in our house, uh, this is our dining room. This is all painting on the walls we write. When we got that paper, this whole wall was for, we were both, both epidemiologists, so it was full of data. And it was full of falsehood and or like you said, mis- misrepresentation. Yeah, it's just copy-pasting the, the title and the yeah. label and just That's putting it, it there because it serves their purpose. And it's right. so frustrating. Right. And I, you know, sometimes I become a misanthrope and I say, you know, to heck with it, who cares, let too. them do yeah. whatever do they want to do. But there is this proportion of vulnerable population who fall for these kind of misinformations and they're the ones who are hurting the most. And right. so I hope, um, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that we'll get there, but I hope there is a way that, you know, people who have integrity, scientists and doctors who have integrity and they want to spread the right information, they would have the right channel and the right way to put it out. So, you know, I think I think it's important. So yeah, that's the only reason I even post on. I mean, yeah. I, I'm so ready to just be done with social media, delete those things. Oh, no, 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 no. We need you. We <laughs> need you. Well, I'm going to keep posting. I'm just not going to check comments yeah, sections. I, mean, I, I think I that's, mean, that's a wise thing. Yeah. <clears throat> this is the new medium. I mean, we can't ignore it. Yeah. Uh, right. Social media is is a way of dispensing information, probably a more effective way of dispensing information than seeing one patient at a time or sure. giving lectures that we do. Um, uh, so your voice is absolutely needed and fearless voice i mean we've both suffered greatly for sticking to the science we were uh, invited to these amazing opportunities creating a whole app on brain with at&t but as soon as they found that we're whole food plant-based all of that went away really but you got yeah yeah absolutely yeah. no there's Crazy. a few of those that happened because yeah. when we came out we were the only ones with the brain health and lifestyle specifically lifestyle not others that have pushed vitamin concoctions. We don't, uh, none of that. Mm. But this voice is needed. And I, I agree with you. I'm also, you know, that statement by MLK, which is the arc of history bends towards justice, you know, over time. The problem is when you're in that sliver of time, it's incredibly frustrating. Yeah, it's very frustrating. <laughs> yeah, and, but it's people like you that bend that arc and, and no, others. Thanks. I try. Uh, no, no, I'm, I'm not trying to give you a fulsome flattery. It's a, it's a fact. One of the b- problems that exists with this argument is the meat element. But then the next thing is the deficiency fallacies that come every other month. It's a, it's a, you, it's going to be a choline deficiency and B12 deficiency, yeah, you know, the choline iron was so, deficiency. Yeah, choline was so weird. I went to, I went to talk to the USDA in front, in front of the board when they we were heard you that. Know, making up that. That was yep. beautiful. Yeah. And um, I, I'm sitting there and all these like, there's all these lobbyists, right? And they're just getting up and they're like, 
they're all talking about choline. And I'm sitting <laughs> in the audience thinking, why are all these people talking about choline? And then I realized in the next few weeks, there was that um, someone in uh, Britain. Her name? Who was she? Um, I forgot. Mar- yeah. Margaret, someone. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And she came out with that statement that, you know, plant-based people are going to be choline deficient. And I realized, oh my God, this is a whole plan by the egg industry to try to come up with a new factor that plant-based people, they're constantly coming up, plant-based people, now it's taurine. They've gone from choline to, yeah. to meanwhile, we're all over here just living our best lives. <laughs> what, <laughs> what, uh, what are you talking yeah. about? You could get choline in plant-based, uh, you know, like legumes and things like that. It's, right. it's just an absurd statement. It really uh, is. And it yet, really is. It, you know, they, they know it sticks and so they throw it out there. But you, we're weathering that storm quite well. I mean, they're running out of things to tell us that we're deficient on. Meanwhile, I look, I check labs more than any other doctor. I, I check vitamin labs on every single patient. Let me tell you, these meat eaters, they're deficient in everything. Oh, you're uh, right. I mean, these are not healthy specimens. Uh, it, it's just amazing to me. It's the same thing where like, you know, I have a patient. I had a patient recently who came to me and she had hypothyroidism and her doctor said it was because she was vegan. Hmm. And I said to her, I was like, oh, well, ask your doctor, what does he say to the majority, the, the rest of his hypothyroid patients that are all meat eaters? <laughs> right. Yeah, they're, yeah. They're, they're hypothyroid for some other reason, but you're hypothyroid because you're vegan. That's just, yeah. it's just ridiculous. That's how they do everything. <laughs> they do. They I do. had a very healthy patient come in the other day and she went in for her first uh, physical. And on her problem list, the diagnosis, the first diagnosis was vegan. So why did she put that there and a list of all of the potential vitamin deficiencies that she could have and a number of tests that were absolutely normal. But, you know, that's that's how people see it, unfortunately. Yeah. It's I mean, vegans can be unhealthy. I mean, if, of if course. you're oh, I sure. mean, <clears throat> I think that one of the reasons that uh, the data in the Adventist Health Study shows that potentially pescatarians live a little longer than vegans, although the, the, the numbers are so nominal that They're, it means yeah, nothing. Yeah, it's basically the same. <clears throat> but the mindset of the people that are in the vegan diet in that population is very different from the mindset of those that are pescatarians in that population. And that mindset matters because the person that's a pescatarian is not an ideologue. So a lot of the people that are in the vegan realm are ideologues who are there for animals or environment, which is great, but not for health. Exactly. Especially uh, the I, epic data. Especially right. epic. Yeah, yeah. Especially back then, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Yeah. But the person that's a pescatarian, that's an unusual population. Yeah. You're going to be a pescatarian only for one reason. Yeah. Either you have no access for anything or because you heard that fish is good and you're into health. Exactly. That mindset of health orientation is yeah. an immense bias that pulls you in that direction. Sure. So it's critical that for people who are plant-based that they have a conscious effort towards healthy living. That's sure. as much of important as as uh, as anything else. So uh, I we agree with you that this is. What do you think? Omega three might have a role in it. Yeah, there's a. <laughs> so for the last, as you know, there's been a lot of back and forth and arguments between those who a say lot. fat is good and fat is bad, and should yeah. we take supplements and not supplements? <clears throat> we keep saying it's more complicated. You can't be dogmatic. First of all, science and dogma doesn't make sense. I mean, I say that the battle is between belief and reason. Well, that's a controversial statement right there. But then on top of that, you can't say that it's it's one or the other. It's quite more complicated. For example, I'm doing a, we're doing a review, two reviews, fat and the brain and the elderly, 40 and above. 
and and you fit in that uh, although you don't look like but we you, all do you, you fit in there we all do <laughs> we all fit there yeah, yeah. Well, you and, and then, me you and me <laughs> yeah 20 and below all the way to pre-birth and uh, the review is coming along very well it's a different so you can't just put fat is bad fat is good omega is not necessary supplementation is necessary it's much more complicated than that for children there might be a need for when a brain is doubling every few months whether you're plant-based or not just because it's been going on for millions of years, I can assure you that does not mean that you had your optimal brain for millions of years. Oh, so, of so there might be a place for you know supplementation, especially in children. We're still reviewing that and, and we'll come up with it. Right. And in the elderly, where absorption, usage, all of that becomes a factor, then it becomes a complicated picture. So it's, it's, it's that kind of a thing. There, I haven't made it any easier. We made it even more complicated. It's not binary. I think mm-hmm. for most of us, we don't need supplementation, but but for for certain population and certain ages, there might be need for uh, supplementation uh, in that population. Yeah, it's a tough question. It is a tough question, but but you know, uh, but we that one that's becoming more more clear. I mean, to be honest, I think that the field of nutrition didn't come to being until maybe twenty years ago. In reality, I know we knew that it was going off for many years. And and then in 20 years, we'll look back and say, oh my gosh, the way we're collecting data, which we are right now in this, yeah, we're doing yeah. the biggest brain health uh, initiative in the country, yeah, 1,700 yeah. people. We're still using questionnaires. We're still using yeah. some unsophisticated apps and, and all that. But it's got to get better how we collect the data and then how we triangulate everything. And that's why your conversations, which is difficult to translate in, in social media, but they're so critical. Yeah. Yeah, so I, it's okay. Don't answer everybody who comes and says, you know, somebody said that, you know, eating. They can't even say it anymore. It's, yeah. it's blocked. Yeah. 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 So I'm basically going to make my statements and you're going to have to live with them. Yeah. Love it. Love I it. I love that. Yeah. What yeah. are your thoughts? So, you know, speaking about some controversies and especially in the in the whole, you know, amongst us, the, the plant-based world about fat consumption. You know, there's a group of people who say no fat, no oil whatsoever. And then we have data from all of these studies, epidemiological studies that show when people consume oils or fats that are polymonosaturated fats, they're, they're, they have better cardiovascular outcomes. You know, what are your thoughts, especially as someone who deals with well, weight mean, loss? Yeah, I mean, look, D- Dean hit the nail on the head when he was talking about dogma. Anytime you've got dogma, and I think the plant-based community became pretty dogmatic. I mean, when you look at McDougal's and Esselstyn's and Ornish's diets, they were dogmatic in their approach to fat being bad. They never really tested whether fat was bad. A lot of their hesitancy on fat was secondary to uh, a very old study that was a brachial relaxation study, uh, brachial relaxation using oils, and it did show that, you know, olive oil did delay. So there's an assumption that it's doing something with the nitric oxide and actually damaging endothelium, and that's why they said no oils whatsoever. From a weight loss standpoint, I don't love oil because it's very calorie dense. Mm-hmm. We agree. Um, yeah. And so I try to stay a little bit away from oils with that. So, yeah, I mean, look, the, the problem with the studies about the monounsaturated fat and polyunsaturated fat is they're not studying it compared to no fat. Right. I haven't seen any study. There's no real good epidemiological, there's not going to be a good epidemiologic study because there's not a good group of no, no fat people that have been following it for many years. So I don't know. I mean, my feelings are are certainly on the lower fat end of things, but not the no fat end of things. I think nuts and seeds are 
extremely important for many of the minerals. A lot of stuff that that um, uh, plant based people could miss out on selenium and, and zinc and things like that. We need to get yeah. from legumes and nuts and seeds. And so, um, you know, I, uh, some fat I think is good and a handful of nuts here and there, I think is an important part of a diet. So I do tell my patients to eat nuts. Oils, I don't know. I, I mean, a little bit's probably not bad, a lot. Uh, I'm not sure I'm a huge fan. Yeah, no, I, I agree. When we wrote our book, The Alzheimer's Solution, we you know, most of my recipes had extra virgin olive oil in them. And, you know, when you're in public health, you can't really tell people to go completely plant-based and then take away oil as well. Yeah. It's like yeah, yeah. you've taken so much from them. So from a behavioral modification perspective, I think it's okay to use it in small amounts in a way to transition out of, you know, a very Western standard American diet to a whole food plant-based diet. And, I, I, and from all the studies, like you said, compared to saturated fats, Mono and polyunsaturated fats from nuts and seeds and olive oil seem to actually be really beneficial, whether it's for, you know, stroke uh, incidence reduction, for Alzheimer's disease, for Parkinson's disease, all of these things. Yeah, right. we agree with you. We, we tell people. So we, we give a lot of talks in churches and synagogues and community centers and all of this. Lots. I mean, we've got given even before all of this for 10 years, every weekend almost. I think we gave as many talks as some some preachers out there, uh, but but it was all it was but, your Sunday sermon. It was it was. Uh, but we always say that the science says this. The science says low salt, no added salt, uh, low sugar, no le- no processed food as much as possible, no food to very little. Uh, sorry, oil. And if you're gonna get oil from you know uh, as unprocessed foods like nuts and and a handful and 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 oil uh, olive oil in small amounts. That's the optimal, but your step is your next step. You know yeah, right. where you where you gotta yeah. you gotta go where you your next step is, and that becomes uh, because otherwise, oh my goodness, if I go to these uh, churches and I say you know zero fat, zero salt, zero sugar, there'll be zero shares eyes. I mean, <laughs> we would never be invited again. Yeah, and, that's right. Uh, yeah, yeah. So no, uh, you're you're absolutely right. We're in the same boat, and there is no controversy. I think if we approach it that way. In the plant-based world or otherwise, there is no controversy. I heard you talk somewhere else and you said, and I love this too, although environmentally and animal right, animals, all of that, we are the same. We, we think that for the planet, for the greater betterment of the planet, it's better for us to go whole, completely vegan and, and as healthy as possible. But, you know, steps, when we see patients, and you said this the same, and, and if they are heavy-duty meat eaters, and then say, oh, you know, reduce the processed meat and go to, you know, chicken. Although chicken studies show it's bad, but that would be your next step. Right. Uh, that's that's how you've uh, said it over and over again. Yeah, I've been just trying to turn the plate around instead of, a, you know, the, I try to draw their attention, first of all, like really make them aware. You are eating an animal at every single meal. Oh, yeah, I guess I am. Your main course is a big steak with a little side of vegetables. What I want is your main course to be vegetables the in the the animal product be a a side and and I found for the most part most of the people do decrease quite tremendously their uh, meat intake and their ultra processed food intake. What are your thoughts about ketogenic diet? Yeah, you know, um, I've studied it quite a bit. Um, from a weight loss standpoint, it is fantastic over the first six months, and then it is not fantastic at all after that. And you know, there's not like I saw there was a uh, some keto doctors had written a 
op-ed piece in the New York Times that said, before any weight loss surgery, every patient should have to go through a ketosis diet because they'll be so successful you won't need weight loss surgery. I can't tell you, I don't think I've ever seen a patient that hasn't tried Atkins or ketosis. I mean, yeah. they've all tried it <laughs> multiple times. Um, it really, it, it could be really bad for your metabolism. If you look at uh, um, the Biggest Loser study that they did out of Johns Hopkins, yeah. there's a lot of discussion about why those people, why their metabolism was so messed up afterwards. But, you know, their metabolisms were just you know, destroyed from the biggest loser, which is why they regained weight. And even 10 years later, they still had a uh, a worse metabolism than they did before they started the the program. And I think part of that may in fact be because the diets they were on were very high protein and low carb. Mm -hmm. That has a very big stress factor. If you look at the studies on people with high protein, they do get high C-reactive proteins and they do get urinary cortisol. It's a big stress on the body. It also affects their thyroid function. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I think the long-term sequelae of, of a ketosis diet has multiple different problems. We know that 40 to 50% increases in LDL, um, you know, if people were to stick on the ketosis diet, which most people just simply don't do, but if they were to stick on it, uh, there's a, all the information we need to say that these people are going to have heart disease. Mm -hmm. You know, now there's this new movement with them. Um, and it's crazy, you know, because I see... These guys on internet, it's like a 28-year-old guy who's doing ketosis and he goes and gets a cardiac calcium score done. And he's like, my cardiac calcium score is zero. You're 26 <laughs> years old, dude. You know? Yeah, yeah. It yeah. takes a while. Calcium, once you've got calcium in your vessels, that's way on. You right. have atheroma right now. You just don't know. And a, calcium, calcium, a CT calcium score is not going to tell you that. And uh, there's a very recent study that showed that most people get a rapid increase in their calcium in their 40s to 50s, not in their 20s to 30s. Yeah. Um, and there was a great study, the Cooper study, um, where at the Cooper Clinic, 30,000 people, 30 years, and they controlled for every other disease except LDL. In other words, this was a group of people that did not have metabolic disease, were not overweight. They simply had differences in their LDL. The upper quintile had over 160, lower quintile had 100. The difference between those two was a mortality rate of 35% cardiac oh, mortality. Yeah. Wow. And so that's a perfect study. I mean, that is a perfect epidemiologic yeah. study to say, yeah. yes, a high LDL is going to kill you. We know that the ketosis diet increases LDL. Mm -hmm. And so I, I don't think it's a long-term study, long-term safe study. The other thing is a lot of people like Verta Health are recommending it as a cure for diabetes. It does not cure diabetes. Not at what all. it does is artificially lower your blood sugar. All right, because you're not eating any sugar. But if I do a glucose tolerance test on you, you will still you will fail that glucose tolerance test, yeah. maybe even more, because you're eating so much fat, you're getting higher amounts of intramyocellular fat, you're actually becoming more insulin resistant. Mm -hmm. So yeah. yeah, I mean, I think the ketosis diet has this trick of making you shed a lot of water weight because you're losing your your glycogen with water, and so you're like, oh my god, the scale's changing. This is the greatest diet ever. Yeah. It does give you satiety because the ketones do create a satiety type feeling, uh, almost a bit nauseated, as some people say, and constipated. And and so you may eat a little bit less. There's also a lack of variety in the diet. It's like, oh, I'm having steak again. You just don't eat that much. But it is not, it's never been proven to be a long-term solution that anybody could stick with. And it does have some serious health concerns. I'm so glad you said that. Yeah, yeah, because we hear a lot about it in our world and Alzheimer's disease as well. And if you look at the number of studies, they're basically feasibility studies. 
They were done yeah, on a very small. Yeah. No, they were done they're on not. a small group of people to see whether they could stick to it. And Six by months. the way, they couldn't. They yeah, couldn't they stick to it. They couldn't yeah. even, you know, keep up with it. And yeah. their cognitive impairment actually increased after they stopped doing it. You know, so yeah. uh, it, it's 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 interesting how you know sometimes these 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 trends just catch on and it goes on without people ever questioning them. We know why, but um, I'm glad that we're talking about it and there's yeah. a lot of data that says that. It's not the way to go right now. I don't know who no. said this. Maybe it's you. Uh, somebody said that uh, people like hearing <clears throat> good news about their bad habits. Yeah, that's why. Uh, that, that's uh, that's easier. Well, um, what's uh, new? What's going to be in the horizon for we you? We heard Any... that you're writing a book. Is that correct? A second book? Yeah, I, I've started writing it. I don't know. I'm not feeling it right now. I got to feel it more. Um, I was going to write one about obesity and taking it from the patient standpoint. Uh, and, and just, I've talked to a lot of people and a lot of people wrote me letters about what they've done. I wanted to kind of get at what people are doing to lose weight. Like, like what is, what's working for them? What is the outside of maybe diet, but what kind of behavioral changes are yeah. doing to lose weight? Um, but uh, I, you know, I've got so many other things on the, uh, <laughs> on the table. It's being hard to, it's been hard to write that book. So, uh, starting to do a little bit more research. So we're going to be starting to do some researches on, on, on metabolic disease, um, and really looking at this concept of plant-based diet and high carb diet, paradoxically being the best thing you could do for diabetes and metabolic mm. disease. And uh, so we're probably, we're trying to get a grant together right now. Uh, there's all this money out there for covid studies yeah uh and i'm tying it a bit to that because uh, i want one of those covid grants because if you look at it you know obesity and metabolic disease is a big risk factor for doing yeah. poorly with covid infection so i want to do a metabolic study and kind of you know frame it quite uh quite accurately as we need to do something about this metabolic disease because otherwise it'll get people with the covid virus it makes, makes sense. Awesome. It's one of the main uh, risk factors for morbidity and mortality. And, uh, yeah, I was working with Robbie and Cyrus from Mastering Diabetes, yeah. and we're kind of looking at, I really like this idea of looking at type 1 diabetics who become insulin resistant as they get older. Right. And the beauty of them is it's very easy to get this measure of carbohydrate to insulin ratio. And that carbohydrate to insulin ratio is a perfect study of insulin resistance, right? It's hard to study in just a type 2 diabetic because they got varying levels. I'd have to measure C-peptides and all that stuff. They got varying le levels of actual insulin availability. But if I could take someone who doesn't make any of their own insulin right. and I could give them a certain amount of carbs and see how much insulin they require to utilize those carbs, that's a perfect measure. It so is. then I could put someone on a ketosis diet and then give them carbs and see what their insulin measure is. And I could take someone and put them on a plant-based diet and you say, and I could do this through continuous glucose monitoring, and that's what we're going to do. Put ketosis, you know, we've got Verta Health stating that this is the cure for diabetes. Mm -hmm. Let's test that. Let's give yeah. them glucose and see what their insulin is versus a plant-based diet. That would be a game changer for a disease yeah. that is, you know, taking so much of our real estate of the mind, and uh, that would be amazing. I can't wait to 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 yeah. hear well, your progress. Well, hopefully, I get some progress. money out of that. <laughs> hopefully, I get some money to do it. Yeah, because in order to really do it, I really want to provide the patients the meals. So I'm going to need some funding in order to do it. That's yeah, right. Absolutely. That's right. That would be ideal. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for this. This was so much fun. Thank you for spending some time. I can't recommend enough how important it is to follow you on social media. I love your <laughs> posts. I love I love the way you break things down and make it palatable and understandable for everyone and kind of shine some light on the truth and data. Thank you so much for and, doing and that. And fearlessly. 
fearlessly, of course. <laughs> yeah. Of course. Well, Gart, thank you again. We can't wait to speak to you again. Hopefully, sometime soon. Yeah, I look maybe in to person, guys. Yeah, let's see it. Let's do it in person. I yes. hope so. Yeah. We'll we come visit you in Asheville. In that's, yeah, right. that's right. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you All so right, guys, much. Take care. Thank you. Thanks. Sure.